It's no secret the NFL has a problem with race. Think Colin Kaepernick. Think Brian Flores. But this isn't a new problem. It's one that started as far back as the 1930s, with a ban on Black players in the NFL, with a past that informs the present. Blackballed is a new miniseries podcast from The Ringer about the four men who broke the color barrier in football. I'm your host, Chelsea Stark-Jones. You can find Blackballed on The Ringer NFL feed. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, my mysterious benefactor, it's Joanna Robinson. <laughs> Hello, I'm just sitting here in the molding remains of my wedding dress as I often do, <laughs> surrounded by layers of dust on things. Oh, Charmed Joe. to be here. And we're not even talking about succession. You know, like that <laughs> sounds like we could be, but we're actually, uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff today. We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, new adaptation of Charles Dickens's, uh, Dickens's Great Expectations, which is on FX on Hulu. And it's from Stephen Knight, who obviously is the person behind Peaky Blinders, is behind my beloved SAS Rogue Heroes, is uh, working on Star Wars, is remaking Vertigo, is very busy. He was nice enough to come by and spend half an hour with me, as did his cat uh, on Zoom, and chat a little bit about this. Honestly, Joe, I really like this. This great I've, expectations. I have, I had uh, low expectations for it, and it's great. So yeah, that's where we are. So you know, we'll talk about that, but. You and I professionally are linked through uh, the House of the Dragon. Yes. Like both the show and also as our like sigil wise, right? Like we that's that's what we we bend the knee for. Yeah, absolutely. That's our soul <laughs> bond, Chris. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about this news that came uh, out. I guess it was yesterday on Deadline. Uh, Nelly Andreeva had the sort of scoop. That the upcoming season, this is a quote, the upcoming season, second season of HBO's House of the Dragon will consist of eight episodes, two fewer than season one of the Critics' Choice award-winning Game of Thrones prequel. I mean, there's also a Golden Globe in there, but that's all right. It is part of a long-term plan for the show, which includes HBO mulling a green light for the third season. So for a little bit of context, HBO... Wink, wink, uh, waits until after seasons are done to decide that they're going to bring back, oh, we'll bring succession back if you guys really want us to kind of thing. Yeah. um, (laughs) But typically what they do is they don't announce their renewals until after seasons have aired. Sometimes we'll get like a after the first episode kind of thing, like, oh, we're bringing this back. House of the Dragon, biggest no-brainer ever to bring back. 
But Joanna, what do you think of this shortening? There's, there's, I guess, a couple different ways to look at it. There's financial reasons, but there's also story reasons. Do you have, do you have one that's like a, a sort of crowd favorite for what you think is behind this? Yeah, I mean, my first reaction when you texted me about this was like a concern, jocular concern about the fact that when they've shortened throne seasons at the end run of Game of Thrones, that made the story feel truncated and like we weren't getting the full uh, meat we needed to understand certain turns of the story. Yes. I don't think that's really the case with House of the Dragon um, because as you and Mal and I have discussed at length, this is adapted from a much sort of slimmer prompt than Game of Thrones was. It's a sort of more bare bones kind of story. And a lot of the things that we were talking about when we talked about the first season you know, there were all those time jumps that mm-hmm. either did or didn't work for people, but was Ryan Condal's solution and Miguel Spochnik's solution for getting through a chunk of the history. Going through the rest of the show, they don't have to worry about those time jumps. Like, no major spoilers, but, like, we're rolling out in sort of a more reasonable time frame. So I'm less worried about a shorter season in that case. And I think what they're trying to do is spread, if I, if I like, look at my House of the Dragon tea leaves, spread certain battles out so budgetarily, like you're not swallowing too many dragon-sized chunks of change for a given season, you know what I mean? And then sure. um, and then character-wise, I think they're trying to keep certain, you know, this is not a spoiler to say that people die in a George R. R. Martin story, right? I think yeah. they're trying to keep certain characters around Brace yourself. longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because like there's a world in which you're like, do we really need to lose Sean Bean in the first season of Game of Thrones? Yes, you do for story. Yeah, yeah. That matters, right? But there are other characters where you're like, well, you know, can we move things around a little bit so we at least can put them on the promo material for, you know, season four or season three? And as far as I know, I think George R. R. Martin has said that they're planning for four seasons. That sounds about right to me. And and what I like about this is, is like, we're going to talk later about a show that I watched recently that felt too long. A lot of things feel too long to me nowadays, padded out. Mm-hmm. I like a sleek season. I like a sleek series. I like a series that knows when it's finishing. You know, we, you and Andy and all of us have been talking about that in terms of succession, like a, a show that confidently knows its end point, which Game of Thrones never quite did and knows when it's ending. Like I'm, I'm kind of amped about this. I, I'll miss two extra weeks of talking to you about what dragons look like. I know. I wonder that, if our per episode rate will go up. Because we have fewer episodes to talk about, you know, like just like the uh, the actors on that show. We should ask Bill for like a, a bump, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Our, our episodes might threaten to get longer. I don't know. I don't know. If yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> for you, I don't know. I don't know if we can handle that. Um, yeah, the ending thing is really interesting because I think that The Last of Us is sort of the thing that made me think about this the most where you kind of, I think that they've gone back and forth as to whether or not the second game is going to get broken up into two seasons or not. Mm-hmm. Um, Casey alluded to it being three seasons. I, I don't think that they've like confirmed it necessarily, but you would have to imagine with the success of the show that it will be that there give, it gives like the show like a kind of momentum, you know, like that the narrative is going into, into the station eventually. And that it does have some downsides, right? Because then if you have all these shows with expiration dates, I suppose you can plan your schedule, but you don't get as many successions or berries or better call Sauls. And even if those shows aren't blockbusters, I mean shows that eat innings on a yearly or 18 month wise basis for the network that's putting them up. Yeah. And I think 
And what's interesting, you know, you and I are huge fans of British television. This shortened episode season is something we took from the Brits, but often, sometimes what we don't take from them is the short season run. Usually it's like three, four seasons max. And then you have this like jewel box thing that you can rewatch and it's sort of perfect end to end and and leaves you wanting more, which I think is what Jesse Armstrong with his like British TV sensibilities is doing with Succession. That's what I want from something like House of the Dragon. Yeah. I want to feel like I felt this was operating at its peak the whole time. And when I go back and look at it, you know, versus what happened with Thrones, which your mileage may vary, but certainly plenty of people don't feel like they want to revisit that. And I want all these things that we love to be things that are revisitable and and enduring and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> the turnover rate, especially, you know, you and Andy have talked about this, but especially right now with so many blockbuster shows for certain networks or streamer, streamers ending, I'm, it leaves me very curious what even next year looks like, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I, there's been studies done about whether or not people are watching new shows in relationship to library shows, whether or not the relationship people have with television is similar to the one that they had 10, 15 years ago where... Right you know, you could kind of invest, whether it was Grey's Anatomy or Mad Men or whatever, like your shows had kind of a long runway to, to, to tell story. And there was a very different experience of watching television and feeling like this was an ongoing story versus going to the movies and knowing that you had this kind of like, I'm going to be in here for two hours and there's going to be an ending, even if there's two or three sequels or whatever. You, you, you get what I'm saying. And I think yeah. that that's sort of starting to change, maybe even starting to flip, where the movies are now chapters of part of a franchise and television are these sort of event moments of Mayor of Easttown, six episodes, we're going to find out who the killer is and you get to see Kate Winslet really like have like set out her stall and be the best actress in the world. But, you know, like the virtue, well, it's, it, you know, it's funny you talk about the flip-flop because, of course, we get these like long-running franchises. Like Marvel feels like we've been watching this TV show for over a decade, which we have. Those characters come back. Previously, the virtue of television, of course, is like getting to sit and marinate with those characters for a really long time, getting to feel the comfort of returning that story. And then in, in the like era of 10 seasons of 22 episodes or something like that, getting... The example I always like to talk about is the TV show Lost. There's an there's an episode of Lost where the gang just fixes a VW bus. And it's uh-huh. one of the best episodes of Lost. <laughs> yeah. And you don't get to do those episodes if you only have eight episodes or 10 episodes to tell your story. You cannot press pause and have the gang f- fix a bus. And so you miss something like that kind of storytelling when you shrink it all up. But the benefit then is everything feels sort of, you don't get the episode where Jack gets his tattoos in Thailand and nobody cares. Right. So, you know, that's a trade-off. <laughs> Do you feel, uh, as somebody who obviously has such a deep connection to Thrones as a as a series of books and as a, a fictional world, like watching some of the issues that Marvel has run into recently and to some extent Star Wars has run into recently and that being somewhat rooted in Disney wanting more stuff to put out that ultimately like the, I don't want to call it parsimonious, but like the let's starve the block a little bit here with Thrones and not put up three shows in one year or, you know, have there be too much and work more on quality control or even just like scarcity as something that people makes people more excited for these things to come on. I mean, in, in a weird way, it's kind of, it's kind of nice that we aren't doing Thrones 12 months a year the way we do Marvel. I completely agree. Like the, you know, even before Marvel hit its current issue, 
this is the drum I was banging around Star Wars where I would say like make Star Wars rare again because yeah. I remember, you know, like we had so many years where there was no Star Wars at all in the fandom. Then the prequels and whatever happened around that. But then like I remember when Force Awakens came out and then The Last Jedi, um, there was this like destination, you know, it was Christmas time and it just yeah. felt like this big, exciting thing to do yeah. once a year. Um, that quickly became twice a year and then it became all the television shows. And I love the, you know, I love you and I love Andor. Like there's a lot that we love about this era of excess, but there's, you lose that anticipation, that excitement. And so, yeah, I was concerned, you know, our beloved pal Mallory Rubin will often say like more, more, give me more. And right. like, I understand that idea and she's often right when she says that but there is something to be said for when we hear when we heard about all those potential spin-offs for thrones i just want it slow and steady like i want it but i want it parceled out as you say and i want it just give me one max a year that's mm-hmm. what i think we should have and let me get excited the other months waiting for it and and let it and take your time with it and let it be absolutely top tier. Um, I think that's a smarter business model in the end. I think I think Marvel is really reckoning with that right now. Yeah, I think that they also, when you allow something to breathe a little bit, I, look, I always go back to Obi-Wan Kenobi, where that was one of the most charismatic creations of the entire Star Wars universe. I think one of the most beloved characters both the Alec Guinness and Ewan McGregor McGregor renditions of it. Mm-hmm. I think that the anticipation around Obi-Wan was this like, I can't believe like we're just going to get this. I can't I believe they're just going to make an Obi-Wan show. Like, that's so great. And the first trailer, I was like, yep, this is going to be dope. And I really disliked that show. I mean, not not like I wasn't offended by it at all. I just really felt like it was... Mandalorian Redux, but like poorly written and not very well rendered for a variety of reasons. And it really is deflating. If you if you have like an investment in those things, and I was thinking about this in relation to the rumored Jon Snow show, where it's like, if they were rushing like a Jon Snow post-Thrones show up for November this year, I don't know. I, th- I think it's way nicer to be anticipating like Duncan Egg or Jon Snow in two years than yeah. it is to be like House of Dragon might come back. I probably will come back in twenty four if you have if we're being right. honest. But mm-hmm. like I'm glad they're not rushing up another throne show that they can be like every Q three of every year. We know we're going to get this bump in subscribers because we're putting up a throne show. And I think you know this is this is the most basic take of all. I just want the things I love to be great. Yeah, right. And if it takes you a while to make them great, I will wait for it. You know what I mean? Um, and so like with you know. Marvel recently bumped the Marvels many, many months down the line. I was just like, mm-hmm. great. Sounds like it wasn't done. Take your time to finish it. You know right. what I mean? Like that's that's how I feel about any delay that I hear. There's always that, you know, there's there's the initial reaction of like, oh no, what's wrong? But then there's the, okay, take your time, fix it, and I'll be excited to see it when you when it comes through. I cannot believe the squandered potential of the Obi-Wan show. Like yeah. there, there are highs of that show. There are things that I really liked about that show, but we waited so like, when will Ewan McGregor get a <laughs> property worthy of his performance as Obi-Wan Kenobi? Cause I think I, you, I think it was good in the show and the show wasn't great around him. And that's just why there was why also the rumors about the original scripts of that show was like detective K- Kenobi. It was supposed to be like a Which Jedi noir. Yeah. And then it wound up being like, no, we got to have a kid in danger because that's the only thing that, you know, could possibly like elicit drama. What else are you watching right now? Outside of like the succession 
and the stuff you're doing with Mal on Ringerverse. Right, like Yellow Jackets, Mando, yeah. et cetera. Um, well, I'm watching Ted Lasso, and that's like a really interesting question. You know, Ted Lasso is also finishing its season, and it's really interesting to me. I don't know if this is just like inside the bubble of either the ringer or wherever, but does it does it feel like the it's air went out, out of the tires? Right, it's quiet like, out there for Ted. Yeah, what happened? That's, I mean, what it, what I think happened is a cycle we've seen before, which is the like the sophomore slump that is a little like unfairly harsh because people got too ecstatic about the first season, right? So people just go lose their minds over the first season, and then the second season, which is still good. Cannot hold up anyway. And so we're in our final season. I'm enjoying it. Um, and I'm just surprised by how quiet it is for Ted Lasso. I, I wonder about a couple of things. One, there's just no, you'll never get back to the, you know, the sh- almost the shock of the first season. Yeah. Of, of that slow, like, you know, I just, this show is probably like a complete joke, but I'm going to check it out too. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. Get to the darts episode. You're like, is this show amazing? Yeah. And, and like that <laughs> right. feeling that people had when they, and then also the word of mouth kind of contagion that took on, that Ted Lasso took on. Yeah. You know, the second season was, was I, I had some stuff I really liked. And now I noticed, you know, I read this interview with Bill Lawrence on Vulture that Catherine Van Aaron dunked uh, about yeah. his involvement with the show, but also all the other Apple stuff. He's obviously working on shrinking and he's got um, a, a Vince Vaughn show coming out on Apple mm-hmm. soon. And he was talking about, how like when they first the first season they were basically doing it like where they were working within the confines of a sitcom structure but blowing up what could happen inside of a sitcom you know doing that yeah and then as the show kind of I mean essentially became more of Jason's show in a lot of ways like he's Bill's running barely it. involved in the third season is yeah. What I've and, heard. yeah and yeah for better and worse I mean like obviously it's a very personal story for Sudeikis the episodes have become longer Right. They've become really, I would almost say melodramatic with the amount of plot and the amount of like, I mean, there's like D, E, and F stories going on in the most recent episode of Ted Lasso. And uh, I wonder whether or not it just maybe feels a little bit more like TV to people. And so they like, people like it, but there's, so far there hasn't been a drop the drop everything and like start tweeting about Ted Lasso moment. I think also that question of excess comes back in because Apple asked them to add two episodes to last season. There was the Christmas episode and like the Coach Beard after hours episode. Right. And like I, I've talked to a few people where they were like at least the after hours episode like really lost them last season. And I was like, well, that was because Apple like sort of last minute asked them to add two episodes that didn't impact the plot at all. And so this is what they came <laughs> up with. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah. But again, there's I think there's a lot of pleasure, even if Ted Lasso isn't as surprising as it was in its first season, et cetera, et cetera. I think there is a pleasure to me in watching storylines end or, mm-hmm. or, you know, jet on towards an ending point. And I will say, I just want to shout out one particular actor, which is like Phil Dunster, who plays uh, Jamie Tart. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jamie Tart character development has been. I think the most interesting thing at the end of the day about this series. And that's, that's like, it's like yeah. the opposite of cousin Greg as cousin Greg declines in my estimation, Jamie tarts on the up and up. So, um, yeah. Do, Tough, do you think yeah. that this show is kind of maybe not buckling, but can't get out from under what we've all decided it's about and what the, so they've sort of chosen like, Here's a show. It could have been a fish out of water comedy about right. this guy who is an unlikely, you know, success story slash inspiration in a different culture, essentially. 
And now it's kind of become this affirmative story about like mental health awareness and a lot of other like issues where it's like really admirable. But I, I noted when they went to the White House, like the cast went to the White House to do right, like ba- basically an event about mental health like mm-hmm. awareness. I was like, it's interesting that they've just decided that this is what this show is about. Not that I'm like, Ted Lasso needs to be more about <laughs> European football. Uh, Although sometimes I am like, Ted Lasso needs to be more about European football. But Chris Ryan comes out against uh, therapy. Yeah, um, right, exactly. No. Um, I, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's fair. And I think also, but here's what I'll say about the pleasure of a final season. Remember watching seasons of Friday Night Lights and, you know, the team is headed towards the championships and you couldn't tell whether or not winning was the right move for the story or learning the lesson that winning isn't everything and losing was the right lesson for the team. And like to the point where even one season, they don't even like show the end of the championship game. They just show you a ring to let you know what happened. Like, yeah. Isn't that the, was that the, First season when devil like when they do the parade to Devil's Town. Devil's Town, which Devil Town comes back a couple times. No, I yeah. think it's like I think the ring one is just like the second one. Like they throw the ball at the end of the game and then like someone catches it in like a scrimmage later and they don't yeah. even show you the end of the game. But I just think that like that's that's a fun buzz like question for me as I watch this final season of of Ted Lasso and like you know Andy's fond refrain is like a show will tell you what it is like mm-hmm. how to watch it. But I like to watch a show and say like. And try to wonder what what kind of show is this? Is this a show where Richmond needs to win at the end of the final season of Ted Lasso, or is this a show where Richmond needs to lose so they can all learn an important lesson? Right. And I I don't have the answer to that. And that is what keeps Ted Lasso interesting to me, among other things. So what else yeah. is interesting to you right now? Have you watched Beef at all? It's not out yet. This Netflix yes. series. Are you Very, not a fan? You're like I am a huge fan. Okay, great. I am yes. a huge fan as well. Like yes. I'm sure you'll talk about it more so we don't have to spend too much time on it, but I just, I want to like amp up your listeners to, to watch this. It's, um, I don't know if you would agree with me that it's maybe like a couple episodes longer than it needed to be, but, um, this is Steven Yin and Ali Wong and it's a road rage slash everything sort of falls apart and devolves comedy of class drama of class, if you prefer. Maria Bello is giving a fantastic, terrible, white, rich lady <laughs> performance. She is. Um, and I I mean, I love Stephen Young and I love Ali Wong. And Ali Wong has never gotten to do something quite on this level. And I just like love how much she hit it out of the park. I love the two of them together. And I just found it fascinating. I, I yeah. really loved it. Yeah. We're going to be talking more about this show in the, in the coming weeks, but this is a fantastic example of sort of what we've been talking about here where there is a version of beef that's a 90 minute feature that probably yeah. would have needed to get made in the nineties to get made, but it still would have been like two people whose lives collide almost literally into one another in a road rage incident. But the fact that it gets this ep- multi-episode arc you get to see some Steven Yun stuff and some Ali Wong stuff that you would just not get to see if this was a 100-minute feature. Yeah. And it's pretty incredible. Like, you're right about Ali. Like, Steven Yun is just unreal in the show. Like, Always. I think it's like, his, yeah. maybe it's the best performance. And uh, so I'm really excited for people to see that. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff coming because we have the Emmy glut. Yeah. It's, it's TV Armageddon right now. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I feel like every time I'm like, okay, I got my hands around it, there's another... There's like another thing. Big it's like, one. By, by the way, it's coming May 1st. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just exactly. like, what? Uh, what else are you like watching or looking forward to? I think that what is to come for Barry is probably one of my most anticipated things. Yes. Um, that could possibly ever happen because like <laughs> Billionaire's been so 
uh, I hate this word audacious, but he has, you know what I mean? And like, in terms of like, you know, your SNL alums taking on a show, uh, Sudeikis versus Hater, like, I think maybe what Sudeikis has done to push Ted Lasso in a certain direction is him almost like trying to run up to catch up to what Hater has done with Barry. Yeah. And, um, and, and Hater is just doing it so confidently. And so, uh, again, t- when you talk about shows that destroy your, your, idea of what a comedy is or yes. what or what to expect in a 30 minute package on an HBO Sunday. Um that's that's what Barry has been. You know, I know that Sean's gonna be covering it on the prestige feed. I'm really, really excited for that. But um yeah, I mean it's hard it's hard to top because you just don't know. You never know where Barry's gonna go. It there's there's also like I, there's a version of me that's t- completely happy with the three season gross point blank version of Barry. <laughs> That's just like an actor who's also a hitman. Right. And will anybody ever find out? And like they've taken the show in so many incredible unexpected directions. And just based on the trailers for this final season and the prison stuff, I'm like, I don't know if like people are ready for how dark this is going to get. Exactly. Um, should we talk a little bit about Great Expectations? Yes. So you mentioned you had no expectations for this. First, I guess like let's let's start with just some background information. So Stephen Knight, obviously this pr- very prolific, very accomplished screenwriter and yeah. showrunner out of England, who also has done some directing and screenwriting in Hollywood, obviously, and, and some um, often gets called in. Um, I don't know. He's like he's basically the closer, right? Like it seems a, like a fixer, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Stephen like Stephen Knight is writing uh, the Star Wars movie that Damon Lindelof had been attached to or had been working on. He mm-hmm. is attached to do a remake of Vertigo for Team Downey, and in the meantime, has this like collection now of shows. I actually said to Stephen in the interview, it almost feels like you were writing uh, a sort of creative alternate, not alternate, but a creative history of England starting in 1800 and going up to the present day with these these series because mm. it's the two Dickens adaptations in Taboo for the 19th century and Rogue Heroes and Peaky Blinders for the first half of the 20th century. Then he's got maybe one of my most anticipated shows of the year is coming out later this year. It's called This Town. Yeah. And it's about a family and a group of young people in Birmingham, England in the early 80s as ska and two-tone explodes and there's all this racial tension in in the UK and I can't, can't wait for that. Michelle Dockery is in that. Um, so he's like kind of fashioning this history uh, and he's got a very distinctive feel, especially his television work has this muscular, uh, I would say pretty profane uh, yeah. <laughs> rendering of Charles Dickens compared to the text. It's like um, highbrow guy Richie. Yeah, That's sort of how it feels. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in this in this version, uh, Fionn Whitehead plays Pip, and Olivia Coleman does a opium smoking Miss Havisham. Mm-hmm. And uh, my standout, actually, or the person that I was most uh, unprepared for how much I would get into it is Ashley Winters, who plays Jaggers. Uh, the lawyer yes. who's kind of guiding Pip through the hellish landscape of London to become a gentleman. So wh- wh- where's your head at with this? So, I mean, I think the reason I said no or maybe even low expectations is just because Great Expectations has been done so many times. Like I've yeah. seen Miss Havisham is one of the all time great literary characters and one of those like like Lady Macbeth, like a character that any actress like wants to get her 
teeth into and I've seen Anne Bancroft player. I've seen Jillian Anderson player. I've seen Helena Bottom Carter player. Like, you know, like I, I was like, maybe I've seen Great Expectations and maybe I don't need to see another Great Expectations. But I should have known because, you know, all the things that you've listed that Stephen Knight has done, I have loved. Yeah. Right. We love Rogue Heroes. Um, we love Peaky Blinders, like all this other stuff. And so I think I should have known that this is going to be great. <laughs> and, uh, and it was. And I think in terms of this question, you know, I, I took, I love a musty, dusty adaptation. I love a long BBC, every word is out of the book adaptation. Like, I'm a fan of those. But I am interested in adaptations that feel like they're trying to grab an audience who might be resistant to something like Dickens. Um, that when the person who's writing it feels like they understand the source material. You have to understand and love the source material. And then I think you can play with it. Mm -hmm. And I think what a lot of adaptations get wrong on that front, like I'm thinking last year, this uh, a film version of Persuasion came out with Dakota Johnson on Netflix that was gasping to be modern. Yeah. But what really missed the mark because in order to be modern, it felt like it had to change all, like, all the characters and introduce like, borderline anachronistic stuff. Whereas like what Stephen Knight is adding, what's additive to this great expectation is like sex or drug use or discussion of the slave trade or, you know, X, Y, Z. And I'm like, well, that's all stuff that was a definitely happening when Dickens was writing and didn't yeah. sex, sex didn't not, ex- you know, you, when you read Dickens, there's always like the repercussions of sex. There's always like, you know, bastard children and infidelity and stuff like that, but you don't have the actual, he's just like, well, what if we actually had the sex register yeah. that sex is happening in order for these other things to happen? And he just gets, he gets the core of what great expectations is about. And in, in fact, I would say some of the things that he adds enhances some of those core themes. So like that, I'm not, fussy in particular about something being dead accurate um, as long as there is that core understanding. And that's like Stephen Knight in everything that he's approached shows how much he understands something and that he can play with it. You know, Rogue, Rogue Heroes, something that um, you and I like really, really loved. I've seen so many World War II. I know. You know, action adventure films and uh, et cetera. And this is just like, yeah, but what if real actual people did that? What would that look like? And that's yeah. what's so enjoyable about it, you know? He's got two kind of major, not tricks, but I would say two major interests. One is just zhuzhing up tired genres. So yeah. gangster movie, Peaky Blinders, World War II stuff, Rogue Heroes, and costume period dramas, Christmas Carol. Great expectations. So he understands that if you throw a really well placed what the fuck into a show, like <laughs> you, you could get my attention. Mm-hmm. The thing that I find fascinating about him is that his is this the most popular working television writer? I mean, maybe with the I can think of one or two exceptions who's just like primarily telling stories about class on TV in on this scale, where almost every one of these shows. Mm-hmm ultimately is about the class system primarily in the UK but i think you could extrapolate it and make them universal ideas about what we kind of strip away from ourselves when we participate in capitalist societies and what working people have to do to just make a living and even in rogue heroes where the kind of perspective is a little bit reversed and it's about this rich fop who decides he's going to be a war hero and puts together a band of brothers in in the process <laughs> mm-hmm. like his his kind of need to satisfy his father's ideas about heroism and 
duty and what you you have to accomplish with your life is what drives like a lot of that stuff. And it's also why a lot of his colleagues are pretty fucking hostile to him is because they're like, you're just this rich asshole who likes right. to go peacock hunting. And now we're stuck in the desert in North Africa doing these missions. So I find that part of like the, 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 the idea that we get storytellers who still have like really important, big thematic ideas that they return to over and over again in their work. And, you know, I think, I think that they're, that that's often what makes someone's, filmography or or you know their imdb page really pop yes. is when i can say hey there's like a you're telling me one big story with these shows yeah. there's a thesis that you're working with here and i think i mean like my uh, not to like return to the same barrel twice in one episode but like because i spent all of the pandemic studying lost and because i am a fan yeah. of like damon lindelof's writing this like when you watch a damon lindelof show you know you're gonna get this interrogation of like faith and spirituality and god and what does it mean to be like religious and understand god and what is that how does that relate to like bad fathers in your real life and how does that relate to like love stories etc and your ability to connect with people and so you know that you're gonna get a different um you know stick of gum in the pack but it yeah. all is gonna like add up to one thing and i I, the the way that this Great Expectation is like one of the most obvious stories about class that he could possibly take on, right? Like this is the story about class moving through classes. And this is like such a personal story for Dickens who like worked in a boot blacking factory before mm -hmm. he became like, you know, one of the most popular writer in the world of his time. And so I think that all of that – all of that is there on the page is obvious, but what Knight has done with this adaptation is make it so much clearer the chains and shackles and the literal chains and shackle imagery that goes throughout the story because you've got not only like prison breaks, but also like Joe, the blacksmith who is literally like forging chains after yeah. chains for the prison ship, how it hurts everyone and not just a pip. But also, like, how it hurts Estella or how, how it hurts, like, you know, the girl back home or how it hurts all these people and keeps them in with this idea of keeping them down. Yeah. And there's also this interesting thing he does. I'll be so interested to see that upcoming story of yeah, there's, Scott and Birmingham. But like, two is, oh, sorry. So oh, no, no. two of Great Expectations of Error. Right? Is it three? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's two. two are out. Yeah. yeah. Because the way in which they've cast this, where, there are non-white actors playing certain mm -hmm. roles, but it's one of those um, moments where it's not like, it's not race blind. Like there are reasons why, you know, Estella is not white or Jaggers is not white. And like how that just further embellishes the story that he's telling of these various strata of oppression. Um, and, I you know and and then and then there's Olivia Coleman on top of that giving yes. like you know but even again. like the the flourishes where like I think initially if you see if I say oh this is Mish Havisham but she's an opium addict and you might be like well yeah. I mean that's not yeah, really right. like either a that sounds like a kind of a affectation right. or that's not what I think Miss Havisham was based on the text but when you think about what Miss Havisham largely is doing to Pip it does sound like someone who is kind of maybe essentially descending into a bit of madness and is fucking with another person to sort of get vengeance against her past. And you can imagine that person wanting to disappear into these kinds of like, like drug addled reveries while they control all these chess pieces out <laughs> in the world. She's, I mean, she's, so clearly numbed herself to so many things like that idea of numbing. It's a, it's a perfect 
addition. And then there's like an in-world explanation as to why she would have like access to it and stuff like that. And again, it just, it doesn't feel like it's there just to be edgy. It feels like it completely works for the character. And then just makes it feel like a little bit fresher than, you know, a, a more staid or straightforward adaptation. I don't need something to be, you know, modernized or judged necessarily to love it, but I think it's interesting yeah. to do it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into my interview with Stephen Knight. Joanna, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. You can catch Joanna on House of R on the Ringerverse feed, talking with Mallory, largely about The Mandalorian these last few weeks. But she's also on the Prestige TV podcast with Bill and Sean on Sunday nights talking about Succession. Uh, it's a great, it goes great with with the watch. There's a lot of Succession content. And uh, yeah, so Joe, do you know what you guys are going to be doing once Mando ends? I don't know the answer to that. We're doing a long range rewatch of Doctor Who slowly through the oh. season because Mallory's never seen it and there's a big anniversary coming up. So I'm showing Mallory Doctor Who for the first time. That first episode dropped this week. So that's a fun project. That's really cool. Yeah. Would you guys ever do Battlestar? Probably. I mean, Mallory loves Battlestar, so yeah. probably at some point. Well, yeah. you know, when we run out of new stuff. <laughs> when, when, when Star Wars closes for yeah, business. Exactly. <laughs> okay, Joanna, thank you so much for joining me. Let's get to my interview with Stephen Knight. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, Get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. It is honestly a total thrill to have Stephen Knight on the watch today. He is the man behind one of the most acclaimed and beloved shows of the last decade in Peaky Blinders. One of my favorite shows of the last few years, SAS Rogue Heroes, and one of my most anticipated shows that I almost can't control myself over, which is this town. And he's got a new adaptation of Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, and you can watch the first couple of episodes on FX on Hulu. Stephen, thank you so much for joining the show. Absolute pleasure. I want to ask you, the first question is, 
a little bit of a cheat because I want to bring up something you mentioned to the New York Times I thought was fascinating. You were talking about adapting Dickens and you said the best way of describing it is to say if you read the book during the day and had a dream about it at night and this is the dream. Yeah. And that's just such an amazing way to think about adaptation because obviously there are going to be Dickens purists out there who are like, why didn't you do page 35 the way I always vision doing page 35? But can you tell our audience a little bit about this idea of dreaming and adaptation? I mean, it's partly to do with how I write everything, which is that I I tend to, I used to pretend because I thought it was the right thing to do. I used to pretend that I, I did an outline and that I did a plan and all of that. But I actually don't. And what I tend to do with any project that I'm doing is to just start doing it with a notion in, in my mind of where it's going. With an adaptation, it's different because obviously you'll you'll give, and with Dickens, you're given this treasure trove of characters and plot twists and the destination and all of that. So you get all of that. But for me, the idea of sort of um, following a map wouldn't work. It's not that I don't think it's a good idea. It just wouldn't work for me to be able to do that. So what I tend to do is I knew the book anyway. I've known it for for a long time. I read it again. And then just to, to then think, and when I sit at a keyboard, the closest thing I can, way I can describe it is like dreaming where you just go and you just let it happen. So you know that there's Jaggers, you know, there's Pip, you know, there's Miss Havisham, you know, where they are and where they orbit each other and, and what that's all about. But yeah, I mean, the best way to describe it is that you have a dream about something that you know and then see how it goes. Do you feel like you almost have to have a certain kind of relationship with a text to use this methodology, right? Like if you were just almost doing, uh, oh, hey, Stephen Knight, there's this bestseller. We'd love for you to adapt it for, as a feature, you know, X, Y, Z. And you say, great, I here's my take on it. But this is almost this... It's everybody's book and everybody's got pip in their head, right? Well, I, it's it's much more effective because the book, something like this is in the collective subconscious anyway. So, you know, Miss Havisham exists in the imagination, even amongst people who've never read the book because the characters, Dickens' characters are always like this. They always escape the book anyway and start to exist in the, in their own sort of universe. So... Having that as the starting point obviously makes it a lot easier. So I'm not having to keep going back to the text to find out who this person is sort of thing. I was curious whether or not somebody like Dickens, who not only is writing uh, in a, a time before cinema, but is also writing under such different conditions, you know, serialization and, you know, what he can and can't say or what, maybe what he would and wouldn't say in a book. Is it more difficult to adapt something like that because it's so dense and because there's almost like a, a pre-visual storytelling aspect to the way he's writing and from people's perspectives inside their minds? Or is it actually more of a thrill because you're stripping away everything and you can say, what are the essential things that I want to show on a screen? That's really, I mean, a really interesting question because it goes to the heart of this whole thing because... I think Dickens was visual, um, even though he knew that what he was writing would never be visualised. He he was visual in the sense of how he describes things, of how he, this is why I, I think he would be writing for the screen as well as novels now. But he does paint that picture, but he doesn't just paint the picture with a description of the room. He does it with the way that people talk and the dialogue gives you 
fast access to who that character is without him ever, ever having to say, this person is like this. It's like the way they speak gives you everything you need to know about the character. So then you have to look at the density of it. And Dickens is, is very dense and realise that, you know, you can only pick the apples. You can't have the whole tree. You've got, <laughs> yeah. You can have the bits, you know. And so therefore you have to not be selective. You have to tell the same story in a different way. I think you have to because you can't just go stepping stones. Um, and then I think the way that Dickens writes, in my opinion, I'm probably wrong, but in my opinion, I think he set off writing things without knowing where he was going particularly accurately. Because the twists and the turns that come from the way he writes, which is so brilliant, I think he stumbled across them as he went. I don't think he did a map either right right and uh, and i think that that really helps me because <laughs> uh, these things come from nowhere sometimes which is great did you ever have a very rigid writing uh habits where you had index cards and scene numbers or you know long outlines or anything like no. that it was always just sort of a free write for you yeah as i said i used to pretend that i did it because <laughs> i thought that's what writers do you know when i first started out but I never did because it doesn't, it doesn't work. I mean, everybody's different. So everybody, um, everybody writes in a different way. Um, everybody comes to, and you know, stuff that's been written according to a plan and, and in that other way is some of the best stuff that's ever been written. It's brilliant. It, it works beautifully as well for other people. But for me, I can't write it unless I'm, I'm inventing it in that moment. If, if I'm writing it down, then it, it just feels a bit, uh, logical. Can we talk a little bit about the dialogue and great expectations? But I, I, it's kind of a broader question about your approach to dialogue, which I honestly love so much, especially in Rogue Heroes and Peaky Blinders. But it's the essence of Dickens, but in the sort of vernacular of Stephen Knight. If <laughs> is that is that the fair way to put it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, dialogue is the thing that I love to write the most, and that's yeah. where every, for me everything comes from the dialogue, and sometimes. If it's not an adaptation, a line of dialogue can change the plot. And I think it should. I think it should have, you know, the most recent thing should have authority over what's written before. Yeah. And, I mean, Dickens' dialogue obviously is incomparable. Uh, but I, I try where possible to have the dialogue be the story and make it as, try and do it in such a way that you think, okay, the, the, this character has just said that, has just said this line. The other character, what would they say? Not what should they say in order to move the plot along. What would they actually say in response what they, to this? Were there actual response to this? Yeah. yeah. And then if, if you can stay true to that, then sometimes the plot changes. In a, in an upcoming episode of of the show, it, it's just the next one, so I don't feel like I'm spoiling great expectations for people. But there's just these amazing scenes between Pip and Jaggers that feel exactly like that, where it just feels like us on their ride into London, the exchanges that they're having are Dickens, but are also like two guys riding horses into London. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully that's the that's the case, and 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 to try and um, as I say, let the characters and the dialogue cause the plot to move along. You know, so many different people have done their adaptations of Great Expectations from David Lean to Quaron. And I 
I know that you said when you were working on Spencer that you right. kind of, this is honestly the best thing that's ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> we're not on camera. So this, the, the cat, we're getting a lot of cat right now. So it's just a podcast, but people should know, you know, what you go through for your art. Um, <laughs> uh, you Quaron, David Lean, and then you know. I know that you said that when you were doing Spencer, you 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 know you were trying to avoid watching The Crown. You didn't want yeah. basically the other takes on these characters or other takes on yeah. stories to be in there. So did you yeah. kind of go into a Great Expectations blackout at a certain point to work on this? Yeah, I mean, I didn't look at any adaptation. Um, the only thing I did was read the book. I didn't look at any. I mean, I've seen them obviously in the past, but I haven't seen the more recent ones. The ones I've seen are so old. You know, the, the David Lean one is the one that, obviously. The thing with David Lean is you think it's your imagination, the, the images that he created. Yeah. You think you made them up yourself. <laughs> that's so fundamentally part of imagination. And that's yeah. what's so important about him. I feel that way about Lords of Arabia in a lot of ways. That, yeah. Like sometimes when I close my eyes and I if, if I think about that movie, it's pretty foundational to what I think movies can do. So... Yeah. And when you see the scenes again, you can't believe how they're in, burned into your mind because you're like, oh, and then I remember the dust goes like this and then he's yeah, going to yeah. come across the screen yeah. like that. Uh, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about the kind of personal connection to Great Expectations because I know that you've talked a little bit about sharing a, a sort of early profession with Pip and what there yeah. was about this book that's obviously Dickens, but that starts to fit into what you want to say about the world. And what is, what is it that makes Great Expectations almost a Stephen Knight story as much as a Charles Dickens story? I mean, it's not a Stephen Knight story, but, but the, I think it's very interesting that, that I think Great Expectations is about class, which is very unfashionable at the moment. And it's about division of society according to class and where you're born. It's very relevant in the UK and still sort of relevant in the US. But, I mean, my connection with it is that I'm, my dad was a blacksmith and farrier and I've got lots of brothers and sisters and, and all the brothers. He used to, we used to get up to school and he'd say, do you want to go to school or do you want to come shoeing with me? So we'd go shoeing with him instead of going to school. <laughs> so we'd be, I'd be sort of working with horses, taking the shoes off, doing the forge and the shoes and everything. And it's a brutally hard job. It's quite picturesque, but it's really, really hard and a bit dangerous. And I wasn't very good. One of my brothers went on to do it for a living, but I never did. And there's Pip, who, I mean, according in the book, you don't get an indication. He's probably good at it, but he chooses not to do it. But I just felt that thing of when he, you know, he says, I want to be a gentleman. It's like, I think people don't really appreciate how odd it was at that time for someone who's yeah. a blacksmith boy to say, I want to be a gentleman. It's like saying, I want to be a horse or a crocodile. You know, it's just, it, it's absurd to the audience that was reading at the time. Yeah. Uh, but then the question, you know, my question and experience is that coming from where I'm from, can you get away from that even now? You know, is it possible to, and, and what are the difficulties? And I, you know, I just, I, in my life and experience was that it took 20 years to recover, to not recover, but to reach a point that you would have been at if you had been born in a different place. It takes yeah. a long time. I have a, a working theory about your television work, which is that you are secretly writing a, 
a history of England through your series. Is, you know? yes, yes, that's a good But no, Christmas Carol, Great Expectations, and Taboo span much of the 19th century. Peaky Blinders and Rogue Heroes take up the first 50 years of the 20th. And now this town in the 1980s, right? I mean, you've just got a couple of decades to go, but I think that the, the, the way that class shapes reality is, is, is a through line, whether you're adapting Dickens or doing World War II or doing Ska in Birmingham. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting idea. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, it's true. It's, you always need someone else to spot the pattern, I think. Um, I'm handing I, you I, the I, Stephen Knight verse right here, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, I mean, the decade I really want to do is the 60s as well, because people don't do the 60s, and it's such an interesting decade. It's probably, I mean, because it feels so well-worn, right? You know, because it's yeah. like the, the upheaval of the 60s. Yeah. 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 I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, kind of the process of of where you're at in your career working on these series that have your fingerprints all over them, but are directed by different people or on different networks and everything and how you kind of um, centralize the creativity because, you know, Great Expectations has this incredible feel and look and the directors did such a wonderful job coming up with this distinct vision of England at the time that feels... Yeah very spectral, but also very real. What's your relationship to the filmmakers when you get to a point where you're, you know, okay, I'm going to go hire somebody to have this thing that's been in my head for months Mm. and try and put it on screen for six hours. And my name is going to be created by up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's different for TV and film. And I don't know why it's different, but it is. With TV, you know, obviously it's the writer's medium, as everyone knows. So, what you've written is, is probably what what's going to get made. I mean, it's increasingly true in film as well now, but um, I tend to write a lot of direction. Okay. Um, and, and try to be very specific about how it should look. Like down to like two shot, medium, this no, kind of thing? No, not, not shots, but, but, you know, this is what the room should look, look like. And, okay. and this, is, this is sort of, this is the emotion you should take from it. But having said that, you then have to get the very best directors. And there are some brilliant ones about, and we got some great ones for great expectations who um who then take it and then make it real and make it unbelievable. And and it's different. I remember when I first started one of the dirty pretty things, I was horrified that it was a brilliant film, but because I, I didn't understand. It was different to how it looked in my head. Yeah. And I didn't realize it was going to be different to how it looked in my head, but it's got to be. And it was, you know, it, it worked beautifully, but I just, that's not what was. And you get used to that. And then you try and get it, you try and get it to, to be as close as possible. But yeah, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to work with some fantastic directors who have taken the vision and then moved it on another level. Yeah, I was reading uh, some stuff that Brady was saying about rules that he had for even just, you know, whether or not someone is entering a room or not in a scene. And I, I just thought that gave the gave the material this in- really lively feel, even though obviously yeah. Great Expectations is this incredibly dense, mm. dense text. I, how, why do you, you just direct your feature work? I, do, do you, do you, have you done TV direction very much? No. I, I mean, I, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a director. I'm a writer, definitely. And if no one else will do it, <laughs> so you couldn't get anyone else to do to do lock. <laughs> I mean, lock. I mean, lock was inspired by what we were just talking about, which was 
how can you make what appears on the screen as close as possible to what you wrote? Yeah. So remove the variables as much as possible, the things that can go wrong. And so that was one person in one location in the car driving and you just film it and the dialogue is word for word. So that was sort of an experiment in how you, how you can do that. But uh, things like Serenity and uh, Hummingbird, really things that no one else would direct. Right. And so um, so I do – and. Uh, Television, I mean, doing, for example, if you if you signed on to do a six-part, six-one-hours TV thing, that's a year and a half of your life, really. And, I, yeah. you know, I've got, so much other, I've got so much to write, I can't really do that. Um, but I think I'm going to, I'm thinking about it, just doing something that's controllable and achievable as yeah. indirect. I often note that uh, when a show will first be announced, there will be like, and the so-and-so is going to direct all six or all eight episodes. And then closer to the release of the show, it's like, this person directed the first three episodes <laughs> and then thought better of it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, kind of where your career is at right now, because it seems as though, um, you know, you've had this incredibly prolific period. Uh, over the last couple of years. And you've mentioned before that you had a bunch of material kind of that came out of of the pandemic and just kind of grinding out stuff. And and I was curious whether the pandemic time changed your writing habits or the way you wrote at all, or Mm -hmm. or, or if there's anything kind of like post that era of a creative explosion, really, that you've sort of been able to sustain now that everything is getting made. Less trouble. Is yeah. the absolute consequence is, you know, I used to be back and forth to LA all the time. Yeah, uh, I was on a plane, a British Airways plane, and the the stewardess said, "I've just checked your card, and you've got more air miles than me." <laughs> and I just thought this is ridiculous. But then the pandemic hits, and I didn't go at all. And now, you know, because of Zoom, I can do. I can do it. And, and that really does make a difference because it's not just the time. Because I used to write on the plane, that's one thing, but it's just the disruption, the time, the jet lag, and all of that. And it really does knock you, knock, you know, it stops you doing stuff. So I think it's more consistent now. I've got more. And, and um, I mean, it didn't really change the way I write, but it, it gave me more time to do it because when yeah. nothing was made, I just wrote. Some, and now you're sort of starting to centralize a lot of the production, right? Are you building studios in Birmingham? Yeah, um, I'm gonna. I'm doing everything. Well, every, all television I'm doing through the studio in Birmingham, and I'll start doing film as well through there because it's my hometown. I'm, 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 it, it's never been known for its film and television production. I want it to become that, and I want to explore the other people who are like me who are coming through who have got stories to tell and give people a venue, not give them, I'm going to rent them a venue <laughs> to do stuff. You know, it's not, it's not like I'm trying to be good. It, it It's, it's just something I want to do. You know? Yeah. My last question has to do with sort of the way in which in the last couple of years, and I was, I just wanted to get your take on it. There's been this obvious wheel turn towards developing and or reimagining previous intellectual property, expanding currently existing stories to have spinoffs, film executions. I know that Mm. Peaky Blinders is, you're looking at doing stuff like that. Do you find that that 
comes with its ups and downs that this sort of move towards, hey, we just made Batman five years ago, but let's make Batman again. Or yeah. is there anything else we can squeeze out of this? I was I really wanted to get your perspective on that because you're once a benefactor, you benefit from it, but yeah. you're also go against the tide because shows like Peaky Blinders and Rogue Heroes are original stories, you know? Yeah. I, I completely believe that it's a shame that specifically Hollywood, you know, is keen to keep milking the same cows. But um, I understand this if it's a business and they want to make money. But I do think that the, the idea that some have worked so we'll do it again and again and again takes away space from the new thing that's going to work. So I do try to balance it so that I am doing original stuff and new stuff. Well, I guess it's, it, I mean, it comes down to how you view something, right? Because, you, you know, you're working on, on Star Wars and, and it was reported that you're working yeah. on Vertigo. And those stories yeah. are, are, is that that much different than working on Great Expectations? <laughs> you know, like it's, they're all stories. Yeah. I mean, they're, and they all have a sort of hold on the popular imagination. Yeah, I mean, I think Vertigo in particular and what Star Wars as well, you know, these are things that are part of the culture. Uh, they're part of our civilization, you know, and there's no reason why you can't engage with things like that. You know, I used to have arguments with my, my kids, you know, and they'd, so they'd talk about Star Wars and Marvel, not from Star Wars, but Marvel and, and DC and all of that. And they'd say, well, do you read Greek myths? What's the difference? Yeah. You know, these people with superpowers. <laughs> and these are stories that have been endured, and they're pretty much about human beings being human beings, actually. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like the, the American mythology is just being born before our eyes. Okay, before I let you go, just tell me a little bit about this town, because it just sounds about the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> it's set in Birmingham and Coventry. It's four people who I didn't want to make it about four people get together and form a band, even though they do. It's four people who are born on you know big housing estates that, that and they're in very difficult situations, and they get into a position where they either get famous or die. And it's about the music scene of Scar and Two Tone. The way I mean, I, it was what I experienced in the early eighties of going to pubs after football matches and hearing this music, and basically an effortless thing happened where black and white people got together, not because they thought they had to prove a point, but because they liked the same music and they used to get together and be together and dance the same music. And I just think it's so it's such an odd, remarkable thing that no one made it happen. It just happened in places where conflict was more, much more likely than an absence of conflict. I can't wait for this. I can't wait for this, and I can't wait for Rogue Heroes Season 2, which is, uh, we, uh, it's such a good time with that show. Uh, Stephen Knight, thank you so much for joining me today on The Watch. Uh, I, I love your work, and, and everybody should check out Great Expectations. Take care. My cat is saying goodbye as well. <laughs> thank you to Stephen Knight's cat as well. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong. 
But these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.